We're going to try to pick up, it's been a quite a while since we had our last session, so we're going to kind of go back and review real quickly, and then we're going to move into um, the next section. We've talked about teaching children from the scriptures. We've talked about the importance of, a, of bringing them to conviction, which means showing them their sin and helping them really to realize that. Um, and we talked about, and you know, we're moving them toward the point where they where they can understand conviction, where they can receive conviction, and where they can begin to respond to conviction, because the the Holy Spirit brings conviction. So even after they're out from under our household, that they will still be able to receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit and know the proper response that they need to make regarding their own sin. There's a lot to child training and a lot in in training of habits and all kinds of things like that. But we need to really work on um, the motives of their heart and the way they think. So let's talk about correction real quick from last time. Correction requires several things. Conviction, repentance, confession, seeking forgiveness, restitution in some way in, most, in a lot of situations, forsaking sin, and restoration. So we're going to kind of walk through those just real briefly before we um, move on. Correction is to make right that which was wrong. When we sin, something goes wrong. And something gets broke. Relationships get broke between us and God and between us and people. And we have to put those back together again. And this is what correction does. It makes it possible to put those things back together again um, and the first um, so conviction comes first this is realizing that we're wrong realizing that we've done something a lot of times we're blind to our own sin and so conviction either comes from the spirit within us or someone approaches us and shows us the situation that that we have sinned in and so conviction is the beginning of that uh, next is repentance what is repentance is to change one's mind if we, if we don't change somebody's mind, we don't change their what? We don't change their heart and we don't change their behavior. If you, you're doing something because you have a certain mindset and you think this is the way it should be done. And so if there's not repentance in the heart, there's no hope of repentance of behavior. Now, we're smart enough as people to know, wow, I did that and that didn't go real well. I lost my job or I got, you know, I, I missed a special vacation or I missed a special treat or whatever the deal is. And so we can real quickly learn, okay, I'm not going to do that again where I can get what? Caught. I may do it again, but I'm going to make sure this time I don't get caught. So we're driving down the road. We have the red lights flashing behind us. We pull over the side of the road. We get our ticket. We either say, wow. I need to really obey the laws of this land. Or we say, I need to be more careful not to get what? Caught. We need to help our children come to the point where their heart changes, their mind changes, their heart changes regarding their sin. Okay? So repentance is changing mind, which ends up changing behavior. Second, confession. To say the same thing. We need to lead our children to the point of being able to say with their mouth that they were wrong. That they sinned. And for them to understand why. Not just to be able to say by rote, please forgive me. But that they really understand what it was they did that was wrong. And again, adults, we're thinking about this in our own context as well. When we sin... Do we have a change of mind regarding our sin? Husbands, if we've hurt our wives in some way, have we changed our mind regarding our behavior? Or have we said, wow, that didn't go real well. I don't know what her problem is. I won't do that again. Well, is that repentance? No, that's not repentance. That's just modifying behavior to avoid a what? A negative consequence. It's not really seeing what we did to break a relationship with our wife. Okay? And so child training is a whole lot more than getting them to say the right thing 
And to even do the right thing, we have to get down to the heart issue. So confession comes when we truly understand what we've done and we say the same thing about it that God does. And sometimes the reason we don't get out of sin patterns is because we don't really agree with God about the issue. We really don't. We think there's not really a problem with X, Y, or Z. But we know it brings bad consequences. And so we never come to that point of really saying the same thing he does about it. And this goes back to what we talked about in this last couple of weeks about what is true salvation. How does a person come to the point of confessing their sin before God? They have to be convinced by the Holy Spirit so that they truly say the same thing God does from the what? Heart. That doesn't come as a result of man's own sorrow or man's own anything internal. This has to be born out from the Spirit of God doing a work in that person's heart. Can a person say, God, forgive me, and I repent? They sure can. The question is, are those words connected to the heart? Or are they just some expression they know they need to say in order to be able to be baptized and to be part of the covenant community? Okay? So we're really dealing in a, a spiritual realm here that's much deeper than just outward behavior, outward words. Seeking forgiveness. Once we've confessed to God we've sinned, now we need to secure forgiveness from those we've sinned against. We need to go, our children, teach our children to go to the person they've sinned against and to say, would you please forgive me because I sinned against you in this way. Could you find it in your heart to forgive me? Seeking forgiveness. And then restitution. If little Johnny used his baseball bat and he hit the ball through Mr. McGregor's window, just going to Mr. McGregor and saying, Mr. McGregor, I'm really sorry I broke your window. Would you please forgive me? That's not all. We're not all the way there. Little Johnny needs to now either take money out of his piggy bank to replace the window or he needs to work for Mr. McGregor until the debt is paid. Restitution. And we have completely lost this in our, in our penal system as far as dealing with restitution for what has happened in people's lives. Or we have extreme restitution. After we have done re restitution, the next question is, from God's perspective, what does he want? He wants us to have a change that causes us to stop this behavior. It's not just, okay, I, I go commit this sin, now I ask God to forgive me, now I commit this sin again, now I ask God to forgive me. And I just, I mean, I'm just in this continual pattern. The pattern should be, now that I have been convinced by God how to act, now I need to forsake the sin. And to teach our children to forsake the sin. Forsaking sin is creating situations where it becomes more difficult to do that. Radical amputation is one of them. If your hand causes you to sin, what did Jesus say? Cut it off. Did he mean to cut off your hand? No. He's just saying that sin is so serious that whatever must be done to prevent it, you must prevent it. So if going to a certain place causes you to sin, you need to what? Stop going there. If being with certain people causes you to sin, you need to at least for a season, what? Remove yourself from that situation. If there are certain items that cause you to sin, they need to be removed 
from you. Holiness is important in God's kingdom. It's not important in the kingdom we're living in right now. At all. And unfortunately, we have, we have been bathed in this culture, haven't we? I mean, we swim in this culture every day, and it just doesn't take a whole lot to pick up the general pattern that, hey, sin is not that big a deal. I sinned, look around, nothing happened, it's okay. No, it's not okay. There's a God in heaven who sees. And, we'll, and you will have to give an account. And unless you're covered by the blood of Christ, that accounting is going to be more painful than you could ever imagine. So radical amputation, whatever it takes to stop this sin. Now, obviously, we can do do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. If that's separated from the Spirit of God working in and through us and meditating on the Scripture and trusting completely in God to deliver us from that sin, that will be empty, that will be powerless, that will be useless. But with trust in God and the Spirit, we can put boundaries around ourselves to protect us. Accountability. So we need to remove things from us. If we're in a situation where we're really weak and this particular situation or people or items cause us to sin, at least for a season, we need to avoid those things and we need accountability. And for certain sin, we need great accountability. We've had this whole session this last time on marriage and and finding a pattern other than the dating culture to find a mate and talking about how powerful sexual sin is. It's the only sin the scripture says flee, run. It doesn't say stand and hold your ground. It is get out of Dodge. And John Piper in a little YouTube video talked about, he was asked the question, should a young man 16 go out alone by himself with a young lady 16? And he said, never under any circumstances should they be alone. And then he said, listen, I don't say that just to the 16 year old. I say that to the 45 year old man and the 50 year old man. He said, the 16 year old has a lot to lose. He says, for me to not follow that principle with a woman, I have, there's even more to lose. I have a marriage. I have a family. I have a ministry in which missionaries are being funded around this world. If I fall into this sin, the ramifications are huge. Therefore, Heart Cry Ministries, anytime Paul Washer goes anywhere, he has a young man with him who is to be with him all the time, wherever he goes, to never allow him to be alone with a woman. I don't care if it's counseling. I don't care what it is. There's accountability built in. So for us to forsake sin, we need to understand how serious sin is, how deadly it is, and be willing to welcome accountability. Unfortunately, we're all proud. And so our natural response is, okay, I made a mistake, but I'll be able to handle it next time. Trust me, I've learned my lesson. Look at the life of Samson. For a man who'd never learned his lesson. Samson was the most powerful man. The strongest man there ever was. And yet he had some sins he never could let go of. And it destroyed him. So we need to teach our children radical amputation and accountability.
especially with parents. And for those of us who are older, we need accountability. Our families provide a natural accountability for us, don't they? Men, our wives know we go to work. Our wives know we where? Come home. That's a natural accountability. You know, wives, if, if your husband says, I'm leaving work, and then five hours shows up at home and has no explanation for where he is, that's concerning. The church provides natural accountability. But we also need specific accountability. And what's the goal of correction? Restoration. This is the goal, is to restore that which sin has destroyed. Restoration vertically with God. Restoration horizontally with people. This is what correction is supposed to produce. And it can only be done by the grace of God, by the word of God. Praise God, he can do that. Now let's talk about, uh, real quickly, how to correct with the scriptures. Real quickly, you need, as parents, to identify the sin patterns in your children. And they all have them. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's slothfulness. Maybe it's lying. Whatever those sin patterns are, you need to identify those. Here's a quote from John Mason in a book called The Treatise on Self-Knowledge. <clears throat> now, these sins which men are generally most strongly inclined to and the temptations which they find they have least power to resist are usually and properly called their constitutional sins. We would call them their besetting sins. Everyone has their besetting sins. Everyone has their constitutional sins. Those things they naturally fall into because of who they are. Okay? Some are more inclined to the sins of the flesh. Sensuality, intemperance, uncleanness, sloth, self-indulgence, and excess in animal gratifications. Others are more inclined to the sins of the spirit. Pride, malice, covetousness, ambition, wrath, revenge, envy, and the like. And I'm persuaded there are a few, but upon a thorough search unto themselves may find that one of these sins hath ordinarily a greater power over them than the rest. Some of us are shocked by certain sins of people. Why? Because that's not our besetting sin. Ours is something else, but we definitely have those. So we need to identify those in our own children's lives. And what happens in these situations is they begin, they do these over and over again, and they create a what? A habit. They habituate themselves. These are why they're called constitutional sins. They become a habit that's in their life and becomes a stronghold. And it's a whole lot easier to build a, a good habit than to try to undo a bad one and then turn that around. Okay? But they're going to have them. I, you know, our, my children, I remember, I mean, one day they were this way. The next day here came this, here came this new pattern. Like, where did that come from? You're kidding. You're so cute. What, what's this? Where did this come from? You know, did you learn it from me or your mom or who'd you learn this thing from? It just pops out. It's just, and, it, and you're going, wow. All children have constitutional sins. They're going to have a leaning toward those things. Second, identify the scripture that directly deals with your child's sins. So once we've discovered, okay, it's sloth, let's find the scriptures on that. Okay? And let's begin to work with our children on those. So look at those specific scriptures that name the sin. Look for general examples of that sin and what it does in people's lives. And look particularly for a person that may, you know, may flesh that sin out. For example, lust would be who? Samson or David. Um, anger would be Moses and Saul. Um, Judas, what would his sins be? Greed and unbelief. To sit there and watch Christ for three years and still do what he did. Unbelief. 
And Haman, what was his pride? Uh, what was his? Right. <laughs> okay, yes. And we saw what happened to Haman, didn't we? So helping our, our, our children see these things and see what they produce. Or, you know, we have plenty of things in the news. It doesn't take much to find something to show our children, look what this has produced in this person's life. Tiger Wood. Tiger Woods. What has lust produced in his life? What kind of shame, what kind of loss has happened as a result of that? You've got to show them what this produces. Okay? Three, consider the following questions. So first, identify your child's sinful habit pattern. There'll be more than one. And two, um, identify the scriptures that go with that. And then three, consider the following questions in order to deal thoroughly with your child. So here's some questions to ask yourself to see if you're dealing thoroughly with your child. One, does, your does my child need to change his mind about anything? Does he need a change of mind? Because if we don't change his mind about this, then there's not going to be the desire to, to change behavior. Two, have we helped our child look at his motives and thoughts? Why did you take Susie's toy? Why did you speak wickedly about little Johnny at church? Again, we want to get down to the heart. What's the motive? What is the desire that's there? What's the wicked desire that's a result of the fall of Adam that resides within our child's heart? Why did you sleep till 11 o'clock today? when you got in bed at 10 o'clock last night? Why did you tell me that you had all the chores done and I see that none of them have been done? Get down to the heart issue. This takes time, this takes work. If we just deal with the outward, we can create some wonderful Pharisees. We don't need any more Pharisees. Has my child confessed his sin thoroughly to the right parties? If he sinned against someone, has he confessed to them? Is there a need for restitution? He took the toy. He broke the toy. He needs to buy the toy and give it back to them. Is there a need for radical amputation of things, places, and people? Does our teenage son no longer need to hang with friend A, B, or C? Or we don't need to go with this group on this camp out again because of what happened last time we went on this camp out. Or if he does go, we're going to have some accountability built in to make sure nothing happens. Because we're not foolish enough to think that just because he told us it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Because we know in our own life the struggle with repetitive sin, don't we? Is the rod needed? And we'll deal with that next time. We're going to get into the rod. I know you've been waiting for the rod all this time. Come on, come on. Where is the rod in this situation? Just give him a good whoop and that'll take care of the whole situation. We'll talk about that. Does he need more accountability? Have you trusted him and given him too much latitude or her too much latitude to where they are unprotected, unguarded? It's really important that we don't give our children too much slack in any area. And especially if we found out they've fallen in an area, then we need to really tighten that up and really come alongside and really begin to pour into them the scripture and sermons and walking with them and talking with them. I mean, there's a lot to do in trying to bring them back to where they need to be. 
Does my child understand how God would have him or her act next time? Okay, this is what happened this time. So, little Johnny, how are we going to do it next time? What's the proper response? We may need to act it out. We need to practice it over and over again to where we know. Okay, when mommy said X and you said Y, what should you say next time in that scenario? Okay, let's try it. I remember this. I remember this as clear as day. We'd sit in the living room and I'd say, okay, I won't mention the child's name. So-and-so, come quickly. Okay, go back to your room again and play. So they go back and play. So-and-so, come quickly. Why? Because I would call and they would, they would just ignore me. They would, they would be so busy about what they were doing. So they would do great at that. So we'd repeat that 10 times. All right, good. It's done, right? So, you know, 45 minutes later, hey, Johnny, come on in here. You know, nowhere around. So it takes a lot of practice. But again, it has to have a heart change. The heart change has to be there with practice. Okay? The law of the Lord is perfect. Psalm 19.7. Restoring the soul. God's law is complete. It's perfect. It's what we need to make us more into the image of Christ. And it restores our soul. It refreshes it. It brings it back. When we sin, we're affected by that. But God's word, praise God, restores. Isn't that wonderful? Think of, the, think of sin and think of it like the shriveled hand of the man Jesus dealt with. It was useless. And yet Jesus, with a word, restored his hand to complete usefulness. No matter what sin you've committed, the Spirit and the Word can restore you. I'll say it again. No matter what sin you've committed, number one, you can be set free by Jesus. And two, you can be completely restored by Him. Okay, so we talked about correcting. Let's go to training. We're going to use the scriptures to train. So we talked about teaching, bringing conviction. We talked about correction. Let's talk briefly about training. Okay? Training a child is the shaping, the developing, and the controlling of his personal faculties and powers. While the teaching of a child is the securing to him of knowledge far beyond himself. Lou Priola. And I'm indebted to Lou for a lot of what we've talked about here. Teaching is causing another to know. Training is causing another to do. Okay? Children won't do just because you tell them. They're going to have to be trained. The word for discipline is paideia. P-A-I-D-E-I-A. It means discipline. It's instruction and training that require sometimes chastisement, the rod, and, and sometimes repetition, like paideia would be with a saxophone, practicing it over and over again until you become successful, or the piano. It, re it requires repetition. We all, it requires repetition in a lot of our areas of life to be trained. Children need to be taught many things, and there's a whole host of them. One of the most important ones for us is potty training. This is like super victory. Way to go. You did it. Yay. All this stuff, you know, the whole day and all this routine. Why? Because we want them to we want to change you more diapers. All right? Totally selfish motivation. We need to train them in potty training, dressing themselves, basic household chores, to eat what's put before them. That's a fun one. We get to go the next day to finish this food. Okay, we're going to have to do that. To wait patiently. Table manners, social skills. Your children have to be taught social skills. Well, they're just naturally shy. Well, everybody can be that way. <laughs> Teach them to look the person in the eye and shake their hand and say, it's good to meet you. Don't let them get to be 25 and still be that way. Hiding behind mommy's skirt. Social skills. 
how to greet people, how to have conversation. These are all things they need to be taught. How to work diligently, how to pick up after themselves, how to spend money and how to save and how to budget. I mean, it's just, there's, it's endless. All these things they have to be taught. How do we do that? Real simple. Just in these areas, we're going to get back into the scripture in just a second. In these areas, first, they need to watch you do it. Okay? Second, you need to do it together. This is not rocket science. Third, have them do it and you watch them. Four, practice, practice, practice. When I was a headmaster of a classical Christian school, we had a wonderful little second grade teacher. She was so sweet. She was a pastor's wife. She was a little drill sergeant. She wasn't a real drill sergeant, but you would have thought she was. But she had all these kids, and she wanted them to do everything a certain way. And so she practiced and practiced everything from lining up properly to getting their materials in a certain way to setting their folders in a certain way. And she drilled them and drilled them and drilled them and drilled them. And why did she do that? Because she knew to have an effective class, they had to be organized, and all the children had to learn a proper way to respond and all that. And she knew they wouldn't pick it up just by a little suggestion here or there. And so she drilled them and drilled them and drilled them and drilled them. And I remember Jenna as a little second grader. She was so cute. But she was in there just doing all these things. This is what we have to do with our children. We have to, we have to teach them and we have, to, we have to show them how to do it and continue to do it over and over again. And then finally, we'll have them do it without us and then we'll check later to see if they, were, they did what they were supposed to. This, deals, this creates responsibility. So parenting involves two things. It involves paideia, discipline, either physical discipline or repetitive discipline or... Uh, nuthesia, which really we get the word nuthetic, nuthetic counseling, which is counsel or confrontation. So those two aspects you're going to have with your children, they're going to need to have the discipline and the what? The counsel or the confrontation. And you're going to go back and forth with that. And it's going to always need to be with the word of God. Discipline without the word is not really biblical discipline. Because the word must be brought to bear upon everything that they do. And they must understand the word of God speaks to everything that they do. They must understand that. Ephesians 6.4 Fathers, do not... Tell me. Exasperate your children, but rather train them up in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. Train them. Discipline. Admonition counsel those two aspects proverbs 29 15 the rod what's that discipline and reproof what's that confrontation counsel give wisdom but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother in one of the earliest child training books i read by clay trumbull he talks about the importance of training Bear with me as I read through this a little bit. The term training, like the term teaching, is used in various senses. Hence, it is liable to be differently understood by different persons when applied to a single department of a parent's duties in the bringing up of his children. Indeed, the terms training and teaching are often used interchangeably as covering the entire process of a child's education. In this sense, a child's training is understood to include his teaching. And again, his teaching is understood to include his training. But it's more restricted since the training of a child is the shaping, developing, and the controlling of this, of this child's personal faculties and powers. While the teaching of a child is the securing of him of knowledge from beyond himself. It has been said that the essence of teaching is causing another to know. It may similarly be said the essence of training is causing another to do. Teaching gives knowledge. Training gives skill. Teaching fills the mind. Training shapes the habits. Teaching brings to the child that which he has, does not have before him. Training enables a child to make use of that which is already in his possession. 
We teach a child the meaning of words. We train a child to speak and, walk, and to walk. We teach him the truths which we have learned for ourselves. We train him in habits of study that he may be able to learn other truths for himself. Training and teaching must go on together in the wise upbringing of any and every child. The one will f fail if its own, of its own best end if it's not accompanied by the other. No teaching, you're not going to be able to do training. No training, it's going to make teaching what? Ineffective. They both must go together. He who knows how to teach a child is not competent for the oversight of a child's education unless he also knows how to train the child. Training is a possibility long before teaching is. Before a child's old enough to know what it is what is said to it, it is capable of feeling and of conforming to or of resisting the pressure of efforts for its training. A child can be trained to go to sleep in the arms of its mother or nurse, or in a cradle or on a bed, with rocking or without it, in a light room or in a dark room, in a noisy room or in a quiet room, to expect nourishment and to accept it only at fixed hours or at its own fancy. While as it yet cannot understand any teaching concerning the importance or the fitness of one of these things. A very young child can be trained to cry for what it wants or to keep quiet as a means of securing it. And as a matter of fact, the training of children is begun much earlier than their teaching. Many a child is well started in his life training by the time it is six weeks old, even though its elementary teaching is not attempted until months after that. It doesn't take much. Training starts at the beginning. It really does. It's much easier to train good habits into your child's life than to have to retrain a child who has developed bad habits. Remember a guy I played basketball with. His name was Alfred. And Alfred, you know, obviously played pickup ball. And so he developed this, and he was short. So he picked up this way to shoot that protected his shot from being blocked. So he held it like this. So this is the way, this is the way he, he would shoot. He had it back over his head like this, and this in this crazy form, and my coach, who was a basketball technician, worked with him for four years, trying to get this to look like this. It looked better, but it still looked cattywampus <laughs> as this starting senior guard held the ball like this to shoot. It's much easier to train with a clean slate and to begin training in every aspect. When you see sin begin to prop up your child, it's time to get on the training trail right then, right there. Simply teaching, conviction, and correction will not help the child who has these deep-seated habits. Training is necessary to create new habits. We can tell a child what he did is wrong. We can convict him that it's wrong. We can correct him and tell him what he's supposed to do. But if we don't train him to do what's right, nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. And my coach in high school, I mean every game, he taught us the same thing over and over and over. And he had a guy sitting by his side. And every time Paul Renfro didn't block off at the blocks, Paul Renfro heard about it. And Paul Renfro didn't follow through on his free throw. Paul Renfro heard about it. And it was all good. But he was what? He was not just about teaching. He was about training and making you do these things. That he would get you in practice. And you'd do everything you did in a ball game. You'd practice it over and over and over and over and over again. So you're going, I can't stand to block out. I don't want to block out anybody else in my entire life. But that's what it takes to shape not only an athlete, but a child for God's glory is that constant training. Remember, the goal of training a child is what? Righteousness. Now, we know that he's going to have to have the imputed righteousness of Christ. 
But there is the real expectation that with the Spirit of God within us, we can begin in an imperfect way to begin to live in a righteous path. Okay? Hebrews 5, 13 and 14. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Notice again the word paideia there, constant practice, constant discipline. The Christian life, well, you know, it's just hard to pray. Well, guess what? You have to practice. Well, it's hard to say the right thing, or it's hard to be quiet and not say inappropriate things. You've got to practice. None of this comes easy. To watch anyone at anything that they're good at, it took years of practice. So that we would think that the Spirit's going to let us do it with no practice? Do we really believe? Some of us believe that. We really believe if we just ask God, He's going to give it to us, and we'll be able to walk as a mature Christian without any practice. And um, Hebrews 5 tells us what? Constant practice. In all these things. If you're here and you don't have children, are you practicing what God's called you to do? Are you young men, young women, parents, are you practicing what God has called you to do? Hebrews 12, 7 through 11 talks about God disciplines those he loves. And that passage from 7 through 11, you can read that. We don't have time to go into it right now. Has the word paideia all through it. Discipline. The Lord, when he, when we're his child, guess what? We undergo a discipline program for his glory and for holiness. We learn a lot of things, don't we? We learn how to drive. We learn how to type. We learn how to play a sport. We know how to play an instrument. We know how to put our makeup on. Some are so professional we can do it while we're driving, putting our makeup on. We can drive and even forgot, forget what we did to get to places. Have you had that experience? What have I been doing? I've been thinking about this. I'm driving. There's stoplights. There's all this stuff going on, and I'm just driving. It becomes almost what? Unconscious. We call it unconscious what? Competence. So anything that you practice enough, it can almost become unconscious competence. You know, when I joined College Plus, they have a little program called Salesforce, a little, little software. I hate that program. Because <laughs> I have a list of 15 to 20 things I have to do on every phone call or check to make sure everything's right on that. And I'm just dropping stuff left and right. I mean, I forget to do this. I forgot to do this. It's taken me months to the point now that I can actually do a call and get everything correct on that call and on the program and go to the next one. It takes even more time when you're older to get conscious competence, doesn't it? Okay? This is what we do, though. We train ourselves in the scriptures so that we can do that. We have very, a real low expectation with our children of what they can do. Let's talk quickly about how to bring them into training. There's four, three or four things. Number one... Start your child on a regular program of scripture memory. How is their heart and their thinking going to be changed by the word of God to live righteously? So they're going to need to first memorize scripture. Okay. Isaiah 48, I delight to do thy will. Oh, my God, thy law is within my heart. And of course, Psalm 119.11, we're all familiar with. The scripture transforms our hearts and minds to think and be motivated by God's thoughts and motives. Even in this psalm, what does it tell us? That David delights to do what? God's will. That's training our what? Our motive. Our desires. The scripture, it goes deeper than just the obedience part. It goes all the way down to the motives and the heart of who we are. So, Start with scripture memory. Second, train your children to meditate on scripture. A lot of us memorize, but we never, we never teach our children to meditate. We never meditate on scripture. 
We have issues in our own life. We have repetitive sins in our own life, and we're not meditating on those scriptures that deal with that particular problem. Is it any wonder we still have problems with that? An old saint named Oliver Haywood said the following, Christian meditation is the contemplative and earnest fixing of the mind on the great spiritual realities which the Bible has revealed to us. Meditation is the soul's conference with itself, the discourse with which it holds with truth obtained and impressions received in the secret sanctuary of its own consciousness. It is the solemn endeavor of the soul to bring home to itself diving things and to so resolve, ponder, and digest them as to work their transforming power into every element and faculty of our being. It's the digestive process by which spiritual food nourishes the soul and promotes its growth in holiness. Lack of meditation is the primary reason why so many professing Christians, in spite of exposure, <coughs> excuse me, in spite of exposure to the most excellent teaching, still remain ignorant, unstable, and unfruitful, ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Instruction flows in upon them from all sides, but their hearts and minds are like sieves, out of which everything runs as fast as it pours in. The impressions which truth makes on their minds are as temporary as characters traced on the sands of the seashore, which the next wave erases forever. Thank you. But meditation imprints truth deeply on the conscience and engraves it on the tablets for the inner man as with the point of a diamond or a laser beam. It thus becomes incorporated into the soul and forms, as it were, a part of it. And it is ever present to regulate the heart's affections and to control and guide all of its movements. How many of us, our heart is like the sands of a seashore? We hear the teaching. Oh, that was a wonderful message. Thank you, Brother Bob, for that message. But because we don't take it home and chew on it and think on it, the next wave washes over and it's gone. And we've been... We feel like we've grown, but the reality is we're still the same as we were. Meditation. Teach it to yourself. Teach it to your children. Three, when dealing with our children's sin, be sure to reference the appropriate scripture passages. Take them to the word. Four, train your children to obey your instructions. Parents, that's your primary responsibility. They need to learn to obey your instructions with the right heart attitude. Five, train your children to communicate biblically. They said the right words with a huff and their eyes rolled. I guess that's as good as it's going to get. No, I don't think so. They need to be able to communicate biblically both with their words, with their tone, and with their nonverbal gestures. Don't be satisfied with less. Train your children to think biblically. How are you going to do that? They're going to have to be immersed in the word, meditating on the word, and dealing as they, as they say stuff that's inappropriate, you can, you can deal with it. Praise God for Luke 6.45. Out of the heart proceeds the thoughts of the person, right? Doesn't take much to figure out what's in your child. It just pops out, doesn't it? And you get to deal with it. It pops out of us too, doesn't it? Why did I say that? <laughs> now, to train your child to think biblically and to train your child appropriately, there's a problem. And the problem, we're going to talk about this real quick. We got just a minute and we're going out of here. <laughs> a lot of us don't want to deal with the heart. We just want to change the behavior. And so we will do anything to change the behavior. We'll bribe We'll do all kinds of things to change the behavior. If we change the behavior and we don't change the heart, that's not biblical training. 
Let's look at it. Behaviorism, we'll call it behaviorism because it's just focused on the behavior, does not address the real need of our children. Their real need is a change of what? Heart, not a change of what? Behavior. Behavior comes from a change of heart. If, it, if, a, if, if behavior is just changed without the heart, we've created a Pharisee. Two, behaviorism provides our ch- ch- children with a false basis for ethics. And what is that? Pragmatism. So, you know, the author, Lou, talks about a situation where he was, there was a parent who tried to get their children to quit saying, shut up. And so every time a child said, shut up, they all had to pay a dollar. When the parents said, shut up, they had to pay a dollar. For long, they had $100 in their bank account, their little, their little piggy bank. And, and everybody learned to not say that word because they didn't want to pay a dollar. Then they celebrated by going on a little special outing. And within two days, the word started popping back up again. That's a classic example of behaviorism. We're going to have some kind, we're going to teach them to be pragmatic. I'm going to, I will change my behavior for this, but it doesn't deal with the heart issue. And they can figure it out. They figure out what the, what, how the game's played. They figure out how the game's played and they play the game and they can play it great. Three, behaviorism trains the heart in wrong paths. So if I get angry as a parent, they learn to what? They learn to obey because dad's angry. Is that really what you want to train them in? That they only respond when you're angry? Or a whole host of mechanisms we use for that purpose. Four, behaviorism obscures the message of the gospel. If you're happy with their behavior changing without their heart, there's no need for the gospel, is there? We now have compliant children who don't need a savior because we've never dealt with their heart and the wickedness that lies therein. And finally, behaviorism shows the parents idols. Why do we child train just to make life easier for ourselves? Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, yes. So, So let's train them by memorizing scripture. The big one is meditating on scripture. And then dealing with their sin with the scripture. Train them to obey your instructions. Train them to communicate biblically. And train them to think biblically. Using the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you. That you are not content to leave us where we are. And you're not content to leave our children where they are. And you've called us to train up our children in the discipline and the admonition of the Lord. Father, I pray that as parents of older children, younger children, that we would be faithful to first train ourselves by your word and then to train our children. Father, help us not to deal with the surface, but to get down to the heart, to get down to the motives. And Father, I pray if we take away one thing from this today, it would be to meditate on your word day and night. That we might be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Oh, Father, help us to grow up to be trees of righteousness. With the help of your spirit and your word. And the accountability of your covenant community. In Jesus' name, amen.